Good morning. Good morning. Let's get into the word. Genesis chapter 21. Please open there. You will want that open in front of you. My words are always meant to direct you to these words. My words are meant to be an explanation and application of these words, for these are the words of eternal life. And these words in Genesis 21 are specifically about life, the physical life of one individual, which will end up being about the physical life of another individual, which will end up being about the spiritual life of a lot of individuals. Your life is dependent on this word because finally Isaac is here. We have been waiting for this moment for 10 chapters ever since we read in chapter 11, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. They have waited 25 years to get to this child. You may feel like we've been waiting 25 years to get to this text. But here we are. Everything has been building towards this moment. All the obstacles, all the tension, all the waiting has been in anticipation of this moment and it's somewhat of an anticlimax. It's 10 chapters, a couple of hundred verses, all driving to this moment. And the big moment is all reported without much fanfare in seven fairly short and to the point verses. Why is that? I mean, this, this is it. This is like the center of Genesis. Why is this kind of reported in the way that it is? I think a couple of possible reasons. First, because the real climax is actually yet to come. Uh, chapter 22 is the real climax. Uh, this is the fulfillment of the promise, but the fulfillment of the promise doesn't bring an end to the story, an end to the tension. That waits for chapter 22. So this is to get us to that uh, moment. But second, though we're going to focus most of today on God's faithfulness and the goodness of what he does, that should never cease to amaze us. But that he consistently shows himself capable and faithful with no effort to always do what he has said without fail is actually unremarkable and ordinary. Because after all, he is God. This is simply who he is and what he does. Should you be impressed? Yes. Should you be surprised? Absolutely not. He's God. So what else would we expect? And he's going to remind us of his godness and his goodness in these verses. He's going to come through for his people. He is going to deliver as he always does and always will. He says and then he does. He promises and then he performs always. Again, you may think that you know this. You, you may think this is simple. Why are we talking about God's word again? Why God's faithfulness again? Why the surety of God's promises again? Well, it's because you probably don't actually know this as well as you think that you do. Or you do know it, but you regularly fail to live like you actually know it. All your sin, all my sin, fear, doubt, sadness, this week reveals that we actually really struggle to believe this most basic but most important of points. So let us all be reminded by God's word this morning, challenged by it, and then I hope comforted by it. Let us rehearse again the perfect and powerful promises of God. Let's remind ourselves of what he has promised to Abraham that he then does for him here. And then let's remind ourselves of what he has promised to you, to, to us 
and what he has and will do for us now and later. And then let's see what the proper response is of God's people to his perfect promises. And I want to do it one more time. Maybe this week and next week and I'll be done. One more time. I want to remind you and review and do all of this in terms of the covenant. I'm determined to convince you to love covenant, to see your need for covenant, to see the beauty of covenant, to also then see how only covenant theology makes any sense. Do you know what it is yet? Can you define covenant yet? Are you excited about covenant yet? I'm going to get you there. Because this passage is the covenant kept. And your only hope is that God is the covenant-keeping God. So we're going to begin with him. God always gets the first word. He always initiates. We always only respond to him. Our words are always only a response to his word first. So we have just two points this morning. Uh, First will be our focus. It'll be much longer than the second, so don't panic. But the first is quite simply that God keeps his covenant promises. I want to review and rehearse a couple of things that we've seen so far as we see God bring all these things to fulfillment. And then in response, we'll close by looking at God's people's response. They obey and they rejoice in God's covenant promises. So what God has done how they respond, Abraham and Sarah. What God has done for us, how we then are to respond as God's people. And that's the pattern. God initiates, we respond. God initiates, we respond. Let me read the text for you. It's nice and short. Uh, There's only seven verses. I'm going to read for you Genesis 21, only verses 1 through uh, 7. And we're going to come back and focus on Ishmael um, next week. Uh, Genesis 1, 21, verses 1 through 7. Pay attention. Because this is what God wants to say to you today. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old, when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. If you would bow with me and let's first begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the the God who speaks and the God who saves. Father, we thank you that you speak and that you save both through your word. Father, this word. Father, I pray that you would give each and every one of us a hunger and an anticipation to to hear from you, to commune with you this morning. Father, I pray that you would help me not to speak your words. I pray that you would help me to be simple and to be clear. I pray that my desire and focus would be to glorify you and to draw uh, the attention of my heart and the heart of everyone in here um, to your beauty and to your goodness and to your kindness. Father, show us Christ this morning. Father, show us what it then looks like to be your people and to respond to you in obedience and worship and praise. Father, teach us in accordance with your word. Father, give us all a great love for you and for your son as a result of this time that we spend in your word. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. Help the preaching of your word, Lord. And please help uh, the hearing of your word. And we ask and we pray this only in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
All right, point number one, God keeps his covenant promises. The text will not let you miss this. Look at how it's emphasized in the first two verses. Three times in those verses, our attention is drawn to the Lord and to his faithfulness to his word. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at that time of which God had spoken to him. All right, so, so God and his word are front and center here. A wonderful, amazing, miraculous thing has happened. But the attention isn't first drawn to that thing. A wonderful gift has been given, but the attention isn't first drawn to the gift, but the giver of that gift. The Lord came as he had said. He did as he had promised. He did it when he had spoken he would. Said, promised, spoken. In the Hebrew, or if you're looking at the King James, you'll see that the second two words are actually the same. In the King James, it said, spoken, spoken. But the ESV is not wrong. Promised is also a very much a legitimate translation of this word, and I actually think this is helpful. It's reminding us of something important about the very nature of God's word. I love learning new things. I didn't know this. I was studying and working this week and learned something new. So thought that was pretty fun. Uh, I stumbled upon it. Uh, did you know that there is no Hebrew word for promise? There's no Hebrew word for promise. We have this separate word in English, promise, that means this one specific thing. Uh, a declaration of guarantee or assurance. A binding statement to do what has been declared. In other words, uh, a promise fundamentally is simply just... A word. You see, biblical Hebrew has no word for promise because of the nature of words and the nature of the God who speaks those words. God's word, because he is God, is a promise. You see, God's word is guaranteed. He is not like us. He cannot not do that which he has said because he's perfect. He's perfect in power and purity, perfectly able and perfectly good. And when you combine those things, any word spoken by this God is as good as a promise. It is guaranteed by his very nature. God doesn't promise. God says, Amar in the Hebrew, the first word. And God speaks, Dabar, the second two words. And all of that saying and speaking, all of God's words are promises. They are God-given guarantees. This is just what God's word is and does. God is the God who speaks. I'm just going through the prophets right now. For, for months I've been in, in the prophets. Uh, and when God sets himself against the false gods whom Israel will, will later pursue, the primary point of distinction God makes is that he speaks and they do not. He is mute. Uh, <laughs> They are mute. Let's be clear. They are mute. Uh, he is not. He is mighty. And his might is demonstrated primarily in his word. His word that is and does everything. Church, we have to get this. God's word is everything. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the universe, the world in the King James, literally the word means the, the forever age. Everything is the point. All of it made by and thus all dependent on God's 
word. We're in Genesis 21. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. He is. That's most likely what God's name, Yahweh, means. Pure existence, a, a saiety, if you want a fancy theological term. You should know and love that one. It simply means he, God is uh, from himself. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He is entirely dependent, independent of all else. That's God. He, he is. And the first thing he does, the first verse of the Bible, the very origin of reality, in the beginning, God creates everything. And we've just read how he does that. He does it by his word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Again and again and again. That's the pattern of Genesis 1. That's the pattern of reality. God says, and it was, and it was good. And it all starts with and depends on God and his Word. In a very real sense, you could say that the world is made of words. I've never watched the show. There's a kid's show on PBS that I've seen commercials for. So I looked it up. I pulled it up on Thursday and I watched the opening uh, little jingle. It's called Word World. And it's supposed to help kids with their reading. But in the show, all the characters are made out of words. Right? The dog character is made up of the letters D-O-G. And the art is, is really well done. Um, I mean, it's not really well done art, but it's effective. You can tell both that the character is a dog. He's got his face and his ears. And all, it looks like a dog. But you can also see the letters. Uh, it, it's a word, dog. And then I think that in the show, as you put letters together and spell things, the word then leaps into life. Right? You add the G to the P and the I, and boom, you've, all of a sudden you've got a pig walking around and talking. Right? The word is at the root of what the thing is is. The life of the thing is caught up in the word. And then the last line of the opening jingle goes, it's a beautiful world. Word. World. That's pretty good. God's world is a beautiful world, and it's a world that is made up by and sustained by his word. God says, and it is so. Maybe we should try imagining things as the word that they are in connection with the God that spoke those words. Instead of the annoying person at the gym trying to take my squat rack, I see man created in the image and likeness of God, sustained by the word of God's power, sent to sanctify me and reveal to me my sinful, selfish heart. You see, God's word is behind everything that is. And at the pinnacle of creation, he speaks man, male and female, into being. And unlike everything else God makes, God makes us uniquely like him, first of all, with the capacity to speak words and to communicate, to represent him uh, in his image and likeness. And there's all kinds of argument about what it means to be created in the image of God. Fundamentally, I believe it means created to be in relationship with God. And also then, at the root of that relationship are words. Communication is at the heart of any good relationship, and communication is words. God doesn't just make man with his word, he then relates to man with his word. And that finally gets us to covenant. Covenant is what you were created for. There is no Hebrew word for promise, but there is the Hebrew word for covenant. This binding declaration, this word of relationship. Do you know what it is yet? You better, because the whole Bible is built upon and structured around covenants. The Old and New Testament, simply the Old and New Covenant. 
You better. We, I misquoted Spurgeon this morning. I got him wrong. This one's Spurgeon. The doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology, is what Spurgeon says. Yeah, so, so what is it? Remember, start with the primary covenant principle. Here's what I'm trying to drill into your brain. What is a covenant? Well, it relates to this principle, this refrain that God repeats over and over again. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's covenant. You see, relationship is everything. Everyone has been struggling a little bit these last six months because we've all been to some degree cut off from relationship, which is life. Well, covenants are how God, the creator king, relates to man, the creature subject. And if John 17, 3, knowing God is eternal life, that's that's relationship, knowing him and being known by him. And if he only relates to us through covenant, then we've got to understand what these are and how they relate to us. So people say it's somewhat like a contract, kind of in a way. It's, it's a divine, divinely imposed uh, arrangement that God enters into and makes with man. A covenant is simply a relationship of oaths and, and bonds. It is a relationship that's both legal and personal. It's, it is an oath-sworn, legally binding, yet intimately personal relationship. Yeah, the basic idea that I want you to understand, that I keep coming back to, is that covenant is simply about communion. Covenant is about relationship. Covenant sets and determines the conditions that would regulate the relationship between God and his people. And again, we're reviewing this right now because we're drawing kind of close. We're getting close to the end of our study of Abraham. We're going to be done soon. Um, But also because this is what Genesis 21 is about. This is not just about an old barren woman finally having her long-desired son. That would be wonderful and glorious enough. There's nothing like life, new life. There's nothing like a mother bringing a child into the world. And in a world that celebrates a woman's right to remove a child from that world before it is even born, to to murder that child, something, by the way, that is now called uh, reproductive justice, I was reading this week about a pastor, I'll emphasize that, a pastor in Atlanta who was running for the Senate as a pro-abortion candidate, arguing that abortion is consistent with the Christian faith and calling it reproductive justice. (laughs) Ah, If there's anything that reveals the depravity of our culture's current conception of justice, it is that. You cannot be a pastor and say that. You cannot be a Christian and say that. And then to try and call it justice. It's utterly absurd. It's tragic. It's godless. It's evil. What else could it be? And here's a man claiming to speak for God to the entire nation, um, calling the right to kill a person reproductive justice. So in a world that increasingly celebrates a mother's right to end the life of a child and then builds entire political platforms around it as its central sacrament, We need to increasingly celebrate the goodness of a mother bringing her life into the world. That is so good in and of itself. That was just a a tangent because I wanted to go on that tangent. Um, But that's not what's so good about what's happening here. That is very good. Yes, unto Sarah a child is born. Unto Sarah a son is given. Isaac is here, the barren one now, bearing and bringing forth life. But it's so much bigger than this one Life. This is not just about God's faithfulness and word fulfilled to Sarah, but God's faithfulness and word fulfilled to all of us. 
And it's covenant that makes this clear. God has been driving towards this since the very beginning. God made us for relationship with him. That's covenant. The first covenant with Adam, remember, called the covenant of works, declares that the basis for that relationship would be our works, our obedience to God's good law. God is perfectly righteous. Remember, he he made us like him. He made us righteous so that we could be in relationship with him. We've got to get this. You cannot be in relationship with a righteous God if you are not righteous. And so God gave his righteous law and basically said to Adam, obey me and live, disobey me and die. We know the story. They disobeyed and we disobeyed in them and they died and we all died with them. That's the fall. That's the covenant collapse. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin is a loss and a lack of righteousness. Thus, we are no longer fit for relationship with the righteous God who is good, which means no good for us. Uh, The God who is also life, which means death for us. And so what happened right away? God came and God made a promise. Remember, no Hebrew word for promise. So God spoke a word. God spoke a word of grace. Genesis 3.15. In speaking his judgment on the serpent to Satan, he's also speaking his grace to his people. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That promise is a word about a seed, about a son that is to come. A son who would deal with our sin problem, who would deal with and defeat our enemy Satan and sin and death, and who would then deal with Satan, sin, and death through death. You will bruise his heel. That's a death blow. So the word is about one to come who would save his people, and in so doing, restore them to relationship with God. And so then nine chapters later, Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and makes him promises, says to him, speaks to him. Remember, three main parts to the promise, blessing, seed, land. The main idea, Genesis 12, verse 2, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. How is God going to bless Abraham? How is God going to make him a blessing to all the families of the earth? Remember, then we see three chapters later in chapter 15, verse 1. God says, Abraham, I am your shield. And I explained why the translation is, I am your shield, your very great reward. See, ultimately, the blessing is God himself. The blessing, the ultimate and highest good, is relationship with God himself. That's what God made us for. That's what we broke in chapter 3. That's what God then promised to restore in chapter 3, 15. And that's what God is promising Abraham. But how? What about the sin, the lack of righteousness that's required for relationship with a righteous God? God continues to expound upon his word. Genesis 17, verse 18, another covenant chapter. God says, Sarah, your wife, Abraham, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You see that? Somehow this son is going to have something to do with our righteousness problem. And this son that is being born is directly connected to covenant. God says son, and then he says, I'll establish covenant with him. So he's directly connected to what God is going to do to restore relationship with his people. So what's the point of Isaac? 
What's so important about Isaac? It's covenant. That's what's happening here. If you just pulled these seven verses out of their context, it's like, oh, this is nice. They have a kid now. They didn't have a kid. Now they have a kid. That's so nice. No, that's not what's happening. Uh, and that's why the removal of Ishmael in the second part of the chapter is so important. We're, we're going to get to that. Why, why does Abraham get rid of Ishmael? Why does God say, hey, do this thing? We're going to look at that. Uh, this is about the all-important covenant. So 21, connects back to 17, connects back to 15, connects back to 12, connects back to 3 and 1 and 2, and God's entire purpose for creation. It all goes together. And it's all wrapped up in these words. These words that are promises. These words, we're going to look at great detail in Galatians chapter 4 next week with Ishmael. But Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that these words are ultimately about Christ. That's the point of Isaac. Isaac points us to Christ. Isaac gets us to Christ. He's the one through whom the one is to come. He's the word whom this word is ultimately about. So turn back there. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Pastor Mike read it for us earlier. Go to page 973. Galatians chapter 3, page 973. Oh, it's a wonderful, Galatians is a wonderful book. We need, the church needs the book of Galatians today. Now the Galatians were attempted, or were tempted to abandon the gospel. Many people today are tempted to abandon the gospel, to go after these false gospels, which Paul is very clear at the beginning, are not gospels at all. But you see, theology really, really matters. Because what is theology? All theology, notice logos, the end of that. That just means word. Right, theology is simply words about God. Uh, the God who is life. So you get those words wrong, you get God wrong, you get death. Yeah, this is why the gospel is of first importance. The gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That, and that's how anyone and everyone has always been saved. Old Testament, New Testament, same way. Including Abraham. Foolish Galatians, don't go back to the law. Look at Father Abraham, who believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there's the righteousness. The righteousness we need for relationship, and there is faith. The means, the gift of God, through which the righteousness is given. Faith in Christ. Abraham believed. So then who are the people of God? Who is Israel? A physical people? No, look at verse 7. Forgot to give you the verse for the first part. Look at verse 7 now. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right, so it's, it's, it's faith that makes up who is Israel, who is the people of God, who are in relationship with God. Verse 8. Here we go. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Us, oh, I love this. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's wonderful. That's Genesis 12, 3. I just cited it as the heart, or two, uh, the heart of God's word to Abraham. And Paul calls that word, the promise of Abraham, that, that is a blessing to all the nations, Paul calls that the gospel. How could this word to Abraham over 2,000 years before Jesus about a son and a land and a blessing be the gospel? Look at verse 16. Galatians 3, 16. 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, seed, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. You see, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes that this word to Abraham, this promise, is ultimately about Christ. Isaac is ultimately about Christ. Genesis 21 is such a big deal. I mean, this is the most important and anticipated birth besides the birth of Christ because it directly connects to Christ. The Christ, verse 13 of Galatians 3, which said, who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Skip all the way to the end of verse 29. We didn't read it. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. These promises in the book of Genesis, they're about and they're for us. God keeps his covenant promises. Yes, God was faithful to deliver on his word to Sarah 25 years later, but even bigger, God was faithful to deliver on his word to Adam thousands of years later. And it is a word of life. And life is found only in Him, in relationship with Him. Covenant is relationship with Him. And that relationship requires righteousness. Christ is the ultimate promise of the covenant. That God would send His own Son, who is God Himself, who is perfectly righteous, to live and die and rise again in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. So that we could then be restored to the relationship with God that is life. You see, that's the thing that God is doing, always, which is good because that's the most important thing. Our problem is that we're not entirely convinced that that's the most important thing. And so what you need to see is the utter and absolute beauty and glory and goodness of this word, God's word. You are taking in so many words all of the time. And headphones are always in, screens are always on, social media is always refreshing and buzzing, though the world is always telling you what it claims is true and good, and you're listening. And that's the problem. That's your problem, and that's my problem. Words are everything. Life itself depends on words. And yet, we give so much of our time and attention to the words of the world, and so comparatively little time and attention to the Word of God. We can spend hours and hours on social media and watch hours and hours, yes, I'm talking about it again, uh, hours and hours of Netflix, no problem, and yet we still try and say and act like we just don't have time you know, to read God's Word. Just, 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 there's nothing to do about that. The hours that we give to one and the nothing that we give to the other, but to repent. And it starts with seeing how good God's Word is. And how faithful he is to do it. Do you see that? Do you love it? Do you read and do you delight in it? I love how passionate the Puritans can get about the things of God. I love how they most of the time write. Uh, listen to Thomas Watson. I'm on a big Watson kick right now. Listen to him joyously meditate on God's word. This is from his body of divinity. Listen to what he says. He says, how sweetly. 
does this harp of Scripture sound? What heavenly music does it make in the ears of a distressed sinner, especially when the finger of God's Spirit touches this instrument? There is divinity in Scripture. It contains the marrow and quintessence of religion. It is a rock of diamonds, a mystery of piety. The lips of Scripture have grace poured into them. The Scripture speaks of faith, self-denial, and all the graces which, as a chain of pearls, adorns a Christian. It excites to holiness. It treats of another world. It gives a prospect of eternity. Oh, then, search the Scripture. Make the Word familiar to you. Had I the tongue of angels, I could not sufficiently set forth the excellency of Scripture. It is a spiritual optic glass in which we behold God's glory. It is the tree of life, the oracle of wisdom, the rule of manners, the heavenly seed of which the new creature is formed. The Scripture is profitable for all things. Church, search the Scriptures. It is, it is full of the person and the works of God, His Word and His ways, and He is life itself, and the Word is where we find this life itself. Do you know His Word? Do you know what He has said to you and about you? Do you know what He has promised to you? Do you know Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see what that is? That, that's a promise. That's a word. That's a guarantee of rest. And how, how wonderful does true rest sound right now? Uh, do you know how to come to the Christ where this rest is found? Do you know 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So that's a promise. It's a word. It's a guarantee of comfort. And how wonderful does comfort sound right now in the midst of all the suffering right now? Do you know how to find comfort in the God of all comfort in the midst of your affliction? Do you know Philippians 1.6? I needed this one this week. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's a promise. That is a word, a guarantee of completion. And how wonderful does completion sound right now when I so often feel so incomplete and that end feels so distant and so far away. Do you know how to rest in the God who holds you fast and guarantees this good, complete, perfect end? Do you know Romans 8? I mean, all of it. It's just like one big promise. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, there it is. That's everything. I was so edified by Henry Sunday School this morning, talking about God's initiative and God's grace to save sinners like us and how God just forgives and restores and gives life. Did you see yourself in struggling Abraham this week? Did you see yourself in Lot um, two weeks ago? Were you frustrated with your indwelling sin this week? Christian, there is... No condemnation in Christ. There is life in those words. Verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, then is so good that now, no matter how bad, it's nothing in comparison. Glory. We get glory. The only thing, the only thing that God has, God's the only one that has it. We in some way 
get a share of that glory. Verse 28. And we know, do we really know this? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. 34. Who is to condemn? No one. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, I just go on and on and on just with God's word. It's full of God's promises to and for you. But church, how little do we and how little do I fail to actually believe these wonderful words? How little does my life sometimes reflect these glorious truths? Everything would change if we truly believed all this to be true. And the problem is not in the word. The problem is in us. It's all right here before us in the Word. We've already seen the nature of the God who speaks that absolutely guarantees the Word that He speaks, who makes His Word promise. God is reality. God's Word is reality. He said, and it was so. And it's the basis of of all of reality. But in Christ, it's especially your reality. It's true even if it has not fully been fulfilled or yet come true. And since his word is the reality, creating and sustaining word, that means that it is impossible for all of these words not to come true. It is impossible for God not to do what God has said. And so the question is, what's what's most real to you? Is it what you see or, or what you feel? Or is it what you hear and what you know? Is reality for you determined by what the world says or by what the word says? Do you know God's promises to and for you? I would just encourage you to start there. Just to go make a list of them and to write them down. I have them on note cards and I write them on my hand um, sometimes. And I have to remind myself uh, of them. Just learn these things that he has guaranteed to do for you. If God is life... And if he mediates himself, reveals himself, saves, sanctifies, is present, comforts everything through his word. And again, what are we doing, church? Uh, Repent. Read this word. Know the promises. And then meditate on them always. Drink of them daily. Rehearse and remind. Write them down. Pray them. Talk to others about them. Talk to yourself about them. Read the words of the world through the word of God. Read your current circumstances through God's eternal word. Read present sufferings in light of future glory. And then repent when you forget. Confess. And then come back again. Ask for God's help. Ask him to open your eyes so that you can see. Ask him to convince you that he is and that his word is reality and life. Know the promises the words of God and think on them always. There's there's a constant internal monologue in my brain um, when I am grumpy and moody and miserable and mad. Um, And I know that those things aren't true and good and right. And I'm I'm bringing, by the grace of God, striving to bring his word to bear on those things and remind myself of what is true in light of what I'm currently feeling or dealing with. And then learning to rest and rejoice in those words. Spurgeon again. 
The more we study the words of grace, the more grace we derive from the words. That's so simple, so good. The more we study the words of grace, the more grace we derive from the words. There's just, church, there's no other way. God has told you where to find him and where to find life. He has told you that he is goodness and rest and comfort and peace and joy. And we've seen here how his word is always true. So, so listen to him. Stop stubbornly trying to find those things in other places. I'm telling you, you can't and you won't. And that's just as guaranteed as all these other things. So Spurgeon again, last time, no more Spurgeon. He says, come, weary one, and use thy Come, weary one. Use thy Lord's words as thy pillows. Lie down in peace and dream only of him. Use his word as your pillow, a place of rest, the place of security, the place of comfort. Church, I have nothing else to offer you. I have nothing else to say to you but Christ. All I can do is to keep pleading and pointing and praying. He's so good and he's so faithful that I want you to know him and I want you to know him better. God keeps his covenant promises and church, his covenant promises are so eternally good. Know them and rest in them. And so second point, don't worry, much, much shorter. How do God's people respond to his faithful covenant keeping God's people obey and rejoice. Look at verses 3 and 4. I'll run through these quickly. Abraham calls his son Isaac. He does that in direct obedience to God's command in chapter 17, verse 19. And then Abraham circumcises his son Isaac in direct obedience to God's command in chapter 17, verse 12. God's people obey. It's that simple. Um, but we so often, I think, get obedience wrong. Uh, I know I have this tendency to preach obedience poorly, to preach obedience as drudgery, to preach obedience almost as if it was no more than not doing the fun things that we would like to do, but God says that we shouldn't, and so, okay, uh, I guess we won't. No. What an offense to God and to his good law. Uh, God, who's beauty we can only begin to comprehend whose beauty we so miss because our eyes are so fixed on and blinded by illuminated screens that only reflect and reveal self god whose beauty is imperfectly but truly reflected and revealed in the great beauty of his creation in the hundreds of thousands of different types of flowers in waterfalls the beach in sunsets in starry nights All of these grand beauties are there to declare to you the glory of an infinitely grander beauty. The maker of those beauties. The true beauty behind those beauty. The one who speaks and reveals through those beauties. The one who makes everything. This God wants us to know him and be known by him. This God who desires uh, eternal good for his people. This God who knows that he is that eternal good for his people. And if he is all of these things, and he's the source and sustainer of all of these things, of life and beauty itself, well, how could he not be the good of his people? That's why the Psalms speak so movingly and affectionately about God. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable with how affectionately the Psalms speak about God. I want to understand this and know this and feel this. I know no good apart from you. In your presence is fullness of life. At your right hand is pleasure forevermore as a deer pants for water so my soul pants 
for you. This God speaks to us and tells us about himself and how we can know him. But that's, that's just, that's what God's law is. God's law is his self-revelation. It is the revelation of that which is good. And so when we talk about obedience, we are talking about obedience to the law that reflects and reveals God. That reveals the God who is life and holiness and goodness. This law that we're told in the law is summed up by love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Obedience, then, is simply the kind call to abandon that which is evil and ends in death, and then embrace that which is good and ends in life. And of course the law doesn't save us. I have so many people that I get, there are whole systems of theology that get the law wrong today because they misread what Paul is doing when he speaks negatively about the law. He's talking about their attempts to use the law to, to justify themselves. Again, there's, there's no problem with the law. The problem is with us and with our sin and how we wrongly try and use the law. You see, the law is holy and righteous and good. And so be very careful about speaking negatively about God's law. That law must then be a reflection of the God who is holy and righteous and good. You see, the problem is that we are not holy, righteous, or good. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's everything wrong with us. The law is perfect. It reflects and reveals God. The law is good. And the beauty of the gospel is that God does not relax the law in any way. And how could he? He doesn't change. The law reveals him. The law then cannot change. But that he keeps the law. And he fulfills the law for us. By sending Jesus Christ to live and die in our place. You see, Jesus perfectly obeys the law because he is good. And it is good. And we are not. And that's the only way that anyone can be saved. Yeah, I like to say this to just be, you know, to sound, it's, it's fun. It sounds wrong, but it's so right. right. The only way that anyone is saved is by works. <laughs> And it's by law keeping. The law must be kept. But since we have failed to do it, and since we cannot do it, our only hope is to then be saved by the works of another. And to be saved by the law keeping of another, Jesus Christ. See, it's amazing. I am counted as a perfect law keeper in Christ. I have fulfilled the law's perfect demands in Christ. Again, that does not then free me from the law. Why would I want to be free from the law? It reveals to me the God who would do this for me. This then gives me great love for the law. And this is the only way that Psalm 119 makes any sense. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You see, we must read the call and the command to obedience in this light. Trust and obey. Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I've seen a number of people rip that song lately, and I get, it, I get it, I guess. If all they're saying is that we will never perfectly trust and obey, that there will always be a struggle, that we'll be like Abraham in chapter 20 at times, that the flesh wars against the spirit, um, then sure, I, I get that. Praise God that in Christ he still loves us, and he, we're still safe and secure in him, even when we fail at times to trust and obey. But... The idea that we cannot trust and obey the Lord and be happy is absurd because he's good and he gives us his good law for our good. So how could we expect happiness when we disobey the God of goodness and life? 
And so, of course, though, we will find great happiness when we fall short, which we do and will, and then we know that there's forgiveness in Christ and no condemnation in Christ. But that, God's kindness there, is supposed to then lead us to repentance and to growth and to pursue obedience. Obedience is good because God is good. Plus, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just, it's that simple. God's people obey. Imperfectly, of course, but increasingly, because he has been so good to us, and because his law is so good for us, and because of his grace. And so Abraham, directly after chapter 20, directly after his failure, his struggle, his disobedience, here we see God's grace in spite of that, and then here we see Abraham respond to that grace in obedience. And the result, man, they are happy in Jesus. Look at verses 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me or with me, as the King James says. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. See, God's keeping of his good covenant promises results in the joy of God's people who benefit from those covenant promises. Laughter is an important theme in this whole narrative. We'll come back to that next week when we see Ishmael laughing. We've got to figure that out. Remember, the name Isaac just means he laughs. We have Sarah's initial laugh of unbelief, now by the grace of God, uh, turned into a laugh of delight and joy. And again, notice a little bit of the repetition there three times. Verse 2, this is highlighted three times. Verse 2, in his old age. Verse 5, 100 years old. Verse 7, his old age. God delights to work in this way. He delights in the seemingly impossible. He delights in the delays, the seeming delays, that make it perfectly clear that it is he and he alone that could bring about the fulfillment of his good promises. And that is just as true for you. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. We really believe, like, we actually believe that we were dead and now we are alive. Like, we'd be really happy if we believed that we were dead and now we are alive. Does, ever, does this fact, this truth in Christ ever make you laugh? It should. Like, just sometimes a laugh of grateful joy. Me. Right? Who would have thought? Me, chief of sinners, second chief of sinners, we saw. Forgiven, redeemed, righteous, though I did and deserved nothing. And that should bring overwhelming joy. And that's what God wants for you. Yes, there will be hard times. Yes, there will be sadness. Yes, we need the Psalms of lament. But Philippians 4.4 is always true. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is what the Lord is after in and for his people. This is what Jesus himself says. John 15, 11, right after the vine and the branches, abide in me and I in you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there's the obedience again. He says, these things I have spoken to you, my, my word, my promises, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Church, that's, that's what God wants for you. And that's what God is, is driving at and working towards um, in you. It's, it's joy. And Jesus says it's his own joy. Full joy. Perfect joy. Gospel gladness. The conviction that all is well. And the contentment and the gladness that results. 
I just want to keep encouraging you that it's, it is only found in him. We're all so regularly tempted to start looking other places. It doesn't go well. And he's trying to draw our attention back to him. Only as you come to know him as revealed through his word, through his promise. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will, my shield and portion, be as long as life endures. So church, God is so good. And his word is so good. And it's good and it's guaranteed because of who he is. So you can count his word as promise. In Christ, God is working for your good, your godliness, your holiness, your joy, your fellowship, your communion, your relationship with him. And that's where all that you're looking for will be found. And that's why the birth of Isaac is so important. The birth of Isaac confirms that God is always and perfectly faithful to do what he has said. So know what he has said to and about you and about himself and that he is going to do in and for you. And then cling to the fact and rest in the fact that he will do what he has said. God is faithful. Isaac here is to get us to Christ. And this story is here to to motivate us to, to see God, to love him, to obey him, to delight in him. In church, we do it. Uh, We do it together, but we do it with his wonderful, perfect, pure, good, and guaranteed word of promise. If you would, bow with me, and let me close this time with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. You have promised good to us. Your word secures that. Father, forgive us for how little attention we pay to your word. Forgive us for how consumed we are with the words of the world. I pray uh, that you would use this time, at least in part, to give us a desire and a passion to pursue you uh, through your word. Father, make us people of the book. Father, give me wisdom, give Mike and I wisdom for how um, to shepherd well and to teach this word well and to encourage every single one of us to live in and in light of these wonderful words. So, Father, I pray that you would bring comfort and encouragement through this word. Father, we're so thankful that thousands of years before Christ, you were working to get to Christ. We're so thankful that Christ is the center of all of reality. That he is all that you are doing always. So, Father, help us to see him for what he is. Help us to see that Genesis 21 is about Christ because life is about Christ. And help us to increasingly understand that our lives are about Christ and to live them in light of him and for him and in response to what he has done for us. So, Father, help us now. I ask that your word, uh, your spirit, would work now in our hearts through your word. And I ask and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.